Welcome, Nashville. Welcome to the Buzzer Beater Podcast, Nashville's best basketball podcast on Nashville's best sports talk, ESPN 1025 The Game. Hey, everybody, my name is Elijah Campbell, and I am beyond excited to bring you some hoops content after a long, long summer. On this podcast, I'll be talking with coaches, players, and some of the best minds in college and pro hoops from around the area. I'll talk a lot of traditional basketball as well as introduce some new concepts from around the world of basketball to hopefully give you all a new perspective on the game that we all love and cherish. And for our first episode, we have a loaded show. I'll be talking with former Liberty guard, former Liberty assistant coach, and current stadium TV color analyst and broadcaster Tim Scarborough. Does a lot of Conference USA coverage on, on stadium TV. We'll talk MTSU basketball. Western Kentucky basketball, and who exactly in that conference has a chance to dethrone Western Kentucky, the outlooks of both of those teams. I also had the pleasure to go to Belmont this past week and speak with new Bruins head coach Casey Alexander. They have an interesting team coming up this year with the loss of not just head, legendary head coach Rick Bird, but also Dylan Windler. Cleveland Cavaliers took him in the first round of the NBA draft, first player from Belmont to take him in the first round, and Kevin McLean. Great point guard there for the Bruins. With all those losses, this team has a lot of high expectations and is still picked to win the OVC, and for good reason. We'll talk to Casey Alexander about his brand new team and what he thinks of them coming into the season and what he expects out of his squad. And last but not least, my favorite segment of the show, and I hope it's it's the same for you guys as well, technical fouls. This is my chance to dish out tees like I'm TV Teddy Valentine to anyone in basketball that deserves them. It's like Chase McCabe giving out citations. The artist formerly known as the Constable. But I will be almost like the official here in this segment where I'll be giving out technical fouls. And I can't wait to do it. I got some people I would absolutely love to tee up. We're going to take a quick break. And first, we come back, our conversation with Tim Scarborough. Coming up next on the first episode of the Buzzer Beater Podcast here on Nashville's Best Sports Talk, ESPN 1025 The Game. Yes, welcome back everybody to the Buzzer Beater Podcast, the best basketball podcast in Nashville on Nashville's best sports talk, ESPN 1025 The Game. College basketball is less than a week away. We are almost there. It's a week from Tuesday. MTSU will be starting off against Maryville College and Right down the road, we also have the Hilltoppers of Western Kentucky who will be starting off against Tennessee Tech. And what better person to talk to this about than former Liberty great and current stadium college basketball analyst, Tim Scarborough. Tim, how's it going, man? Elijah, I'm doing great, man. How are you? Oh, I'm just glad the season's getting started. We've waited all off season. We have a ton to talk about tonight. And the fact that it's now a less than a week away has got me incredibly excited, and we're going to be busy men until March. I can tell you that, or April even. So so busy. You're right. And, and you know, I live in Atlanta. The Final Four is in Atlanta this year, so you're right. I'll I'll be right through till April, man, and I can't wait. That's right. It's the it's the best. It's Christmas for guys like us, for college basketball yeah. fans, and I I can't wait to get started. And first thing before we hop into previewing MTSU in Western Kentucky and all, and all things Conference USA and what's going on with them this year. You had the pleasure of working with ESPN and doing the basketball tournament, or TBT, 
as it's known, uh, this past summer and the last couple summers. And you guys yeah. have kind of toyed with the Elam ending, which is a really fascinating concept. And I love it to death. But for some of our listeners out there, go ahead and explain uh, to them what that is and how interesting was it from your standpoint to be able to work with that. So now, now you're talking my language. Oh, yeah. Did a little Nick, research before this. Oh, it's, it is great. So I'll explain to you. Nick Elam's a good friend of mine. I've met him a few years ago. Um, he has developed a concept to end basketball games that pretty much eliminates fouling and it eliminates stalling if you have the lead. And what it is is in the last four minutes of the game, they turn off the, the play clock, the game clock. You just have a shot clock, and you, you freeze the score, and you take the, the highest-scoring team, and whichever one is leading at that point, you add 8, 10, or whatever number you want to add, pick. I think this year we added 8 points to that total. And then the first team that gets to the target score wins the game. So you don't have a clock other than the shot clock, and you're really just kind of playing at that point to get good shots and to get stops at the other end and try to beat them to that score. It's kind of like a, a really uh, high-level pickup game with referees and, and people in the stands. I love it. And the more I've been around it, and I've been lucky. I, I was literally the first analyst to call the first Elam ending game, I think uh, three summers ago, two summers ago, um, in Philadelphia, my hometown where I grew up, um, at Philadelphia University. It was, a, it was an experiment. They did it for a weekend. It went well. The following year, um, uh, John Mugar, who was the guy who created the, tur- the basketball tournament, decided that they were going to do it for the entire tournament, um, wow. every single game, right through the championship. And that was an adjustment for the players and coaches because not everybody even played in that jamboree that week, that weekend. So not, some, some coaches literally came in not knowing how the game was going to end. It was a, a weird thing. But this past year, um, more people got involved. You got guys like Chris Paul and Boogie Cousins, and these NBA guys are really starting to get invested in it. Um, Evan Turner, who now plays for the Hawks here in Atlanta, uh, coached that Ohio State team that won the whole thing, and they love it. And expect next year for the tournament to be even bigger than it has been in the past. It's a great thing. I'm happy to be a part of it. Oh yeah, I enjoy watching that. That's one of my favorite things to watch in the summer, especially for people that are you know diehard college hoops fans. You have those guys that were really good in college. I mean, shoot, you had uh, the team from Marshall. John Elmore played on a team there at the basketball yeah. tournament this year, and of course the Ohio State in team fact, that's in it every year. Johnson, Justin Johnson from Western Kentucky, who was a West Virginia kid, was also on that same team as John Elmore, who of course is the all-time leading scorer. Conference USA history as, as he just finished his career at Marshall. And they had a pretty good team. And it's just, it tells you the level of talent that the tournament is starting to attract. Um, mm-hmm. These alumni teams, of course, are, are good. But when you get guys who kind of grew up together or always wanted to play with each other, like there's a Big Ten team that uh, Dan Dockage's son uh, started. He, he, of course, played at Ohio State and uh, Michigan. And, and he kind of pulled together. Um, a group of guys from the Big Ten, Wichita put a team in, and, man, did they show up. Their fans showed up, showed out. Uh, West Virginia had a really good team, and George Mason, Richmond, VCU had a team the last few years. And, you know, I, I had the privilege of calling that, that Richmond region where a uh, four-time champion overseas elite was. And I, I got disappointed because that VCU team 
had the home court advantage, and they lost in the first round. Oh, so man! I didn't get the, I didn't get the matchup I wanted with uh, <laughs> overseas elite and 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 the uh, Ram Nation. But um, all in all, it was still a great time. I, you know, it's my time to shine a little bit. I get to be on ESPN um, on the on the you know the main ESPN, which is just a real privilege. Even guys who work at ESPN don't always get a chance to get on the main ESPN. So. Oh yeah, they're and, a real blessing, and it's a nice bridge between college basketball seasons for me too. You know, as soon as the April, I used I used to get depressed almost when college basketball would end, but now as soon as that ends, I start thinking about the tournament. Oh and yeah, when the tournament ends. I'm back to thinking about college basketball again. It's a great extension for the sport, and it really is great for people who are college basketball fans. And I was going to go back to what you mentioned earlier about Wichita State. That was an incredible environment. Like, you're watching it on TV, and that place is as packed as it is for a Wichita State game. They were getting up for that. It's unbelievable. And again, we talked about Ohio State team. They got to play in their, in, their, in, in Columbus. And Dayton, which is not that far, Dayton has a tremendous fan base for people who don't know. Uh, which is one of the reasons why Dayton always opens the NCAA tournament every year. You notice the, the play-in games, the first four, whatever they want to call it now, those games are played in Dayton every year. It's because that fan base is so uh, rabid about college basketball and, of course, about the Dayton Flyers. But, uh, you know, that they had a really good team. And the thing about the Elam ending, going back to that, is every game ends on a made shot. That is the most incredible thing to think about. You know, it's like having a buzzer beater every game. Every Even game. The score is is a, a, a lopsided score. That team that's winning can't take their foot off the gas. They can't substitute because they're still trying to get to that goal, and they, and they don't want to take a, a chance and put you know clear their bench, and then the other team comes back and wins the game. So it's just it's just a really a great concept. Nick Elam is in my in my opinion a genius for coming up with it. And, you know, the reason he did, you know, of course, I talk to him a lot. The reason he started this, he, he did all the analytics, you know, 10, 12 years ago. And he found that, this is crazy, Elijah, the fouling works about 3% of the time in pro basketball and about 4% of the time in college basketball. Wow. So not only is, is it something that everybody does, but it doesn't work. It, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't even increase your chances of winning that much you have to file at the end to try to stop the clock and, and try to make a comeback. And most of the time when you do see comebacks, and, and you do sometimes in, in college basketball and the NBA, all the time in the NBA, it's usually because that team that's, that's leading does a lot of stupid things. You know, they turn it <laughs> over four times in a row, or they come down and take quick shots when they should be using the clock, or they miss six free throws in a row or something like that. So mm. it's not the fouling necessarily and stopping the clock that gets you in. It's, it's the other team melting down. So um, I think it's brilliant. I think at some point it's going to be universal, maybe in our lifetime. Uh, oh, wow. Well, your lifetime for sure, because what are you, about 20? <laughs> <laughs> 20? 24, close. But I, I would love to see that in my lifetime. That kind of excitement is incredible. Oh, it's great. Oh, yeah. And that's that was one thing I was going to ask you, too, is like how close are we to actually seeing this? and. I mean, March Madness is the spectacle it is now. Just imagine if every game ended on a buzzer beater. I I couldn't wow. imagine the amount of popularity that would soar through. Yeah, I mean, drama upon drama upon drama. And obviously, March Madness has its own built-in drama. Uh, but yeah, if you if you change every game to an Elam ending, I'm I'm all for that. Oh, for sure. 
Uh, we'll go ahead and pivot to uh, to MTSU. Now, last year, a rough first year for the Blue Raiders. Kermit Davis leaves uh, for greener pastures over in Oxford, Mississippi. And Nick McDevitt was really put in kind of a lose-lose situation. A lot of guys left from a really talented team, from a senior class or upper class like Layden team. The best recruiting class that MTSU ever had ditched for either Ole Miss or Georgia. And he really was given a bare bones roster that he had to to kind of put together at the last minute, and they still end up winning eleven yeah. games. What were your for initial reactions to his season? How would you grade year one under the Nick McDevitt era? Well, first of all, let me say I love Nick McDevitt. I have known him since he was a teenager as a player at uh, UNC Asheville when I was coaching at Liberty. Uh, we used to prepare game plans to stop him, and then. He moved right into, as an assistant coach, moved right into coaching um, at UNC Asheville. And, in fact, the guy has never lived outside of Asheville because he played his high school ball <laughs> and, and grew up in Asheville. So the first time he'd ever lived away from the city of Asheville was last year when he moved to Murfreesboro. So um, I got to talk to him last week down at Media Day um, and asked him about you know the adjustment of moving and to, to Murfreesboro. He thought it was the greatest thing. He loves the place. He likes program, but you're right. He inherited a, a really kind of a mess because of all those defections. And that's what happens when you when you replace a legend, and let's call Kermit Davis a legend. He, it was legendary mm-hmm. what he did at Middle Tennessee. Um, that sustained period of winning, and then he started playing on a national level, won two straight years. They won uh, NCAA tournament games, and you know it was time for him to go get that multi-million dollar job, and you can't blame him for leaving. But he built something special there, and it's going to take time for Nick McDevitt to fill that role. But, you know, I thought Nick did a solid job. The thing that I like about what he did last year is, if you remember, they started off 1-14 in Division One games. Oh, yeah. 1-14. A, a lot of coaches and a lot of groups of players would just pack their tent and at that point pack it up and say, you know what, it's not our year. You know, we, we just you know, we don't have the right players. We're just going to look to the future. But they didn't do that. They won eight conference games, and they were very competitive. Um, Antonio Green was sensational, um, a big-time player. And they kind of built around him, and they have um, some more talent coming in this year. Um, they're picked in the middle of the conference, but I expect Middle Tennessee to start trending in the right direction, and it's due in part to Nick McDevitt and that coaching staff. Oh, yeah, and with the way the CUSA is right now, a lot of teams losing a lot. Marshall's not going to be as good as they have been the last couple of years. Old Dominion won't be as good as they were the last couple of years. And there's really, if you look at the conference, not a lot of teams that you look at and say, this team is going to be better this year than they were last year. And MTSU will definitely be one of them. But a big loss they've had already during their trip to Costa Rica was the loss of DeAndre Dishman, the Eastern Kentucky transfer, who, when you talk to Nick McDevitt, has commonly said that he was going to play like the Draymond Green type role, the guy who's the, the the forward who can rebound, pass, and create shots for everybody else. How big of a loss is a guy like that, especially for a team like MTSU? Well, you know, obviously they were going to depend on him to, to score and, and really facilitate offense, and that's where it hurts. Um, but, you know, I, I felt like Middles' defense traveled last year. They, they were a pretty solid defensive team. And you still have uh, a young Donovan Sims, who is a junior now. It feels crazy that he's a junior, because I think he was about 17 when he first got to uh, middle. And, of course, he's a Murfreesboro kid. But I feel like he may 
take a real leap forward in terms of scoring and just understanding the game. And, uh, you know, you still have Antonio Green, who was preseason all-conference. So the question is, do they have enough in terms of points to, to, uh, to compete in this league? And I really think they do. And you mentioned a good thing. There's a lot of teams who aren't as, uh, so we say, talented, or at least they're not going to be where they were last year. You think of Old Dominion and Marshall, the two you mentioned. But I feel like UAB, at the end of the year, was playing as good as anyone. Remember the Conference USA Tournament? They had that game against uh, Old Dominion, who eventually won the whole thing. They had them beat. Mm-hmm. They still had a shot at the buzzer, and they overthrew the pass that would have had a, a, a wide-open layup. You know, I talked to Robert Eason a few times this summer, and you know, we, we both talk about the fine line between winning and losing. But I really think they're going to take a step up, and then you look at UTEP, who was picked what, third or fourth in, in preseason, of a team that only won three games last year in conference. So that tells you um, the fact that they have five transfers that were all sitting out. You know, Coach Kerry is going to have a squad next year uh, this season um, down in, in uh, El Paso. Oh, for sure. And that's, that's a team that's going to, that is supposed to uh, surprise some people this season. And like you said, they haven't been very good as of late. And talking about NTSU, um, the two guys that you mentioned, Antonio Green and Donovan Sims, we know what we're getting from Antonio Green. The guy's a lights-out shooter, and I absolutely shredded the three-point record book in his first season at MTSU. But an interesting player to me is Donovan Sims because his first year and a half in college basketball wasn't necessarily known as a scorer, not an aggressive scorer, but later in conference season when they started winning games, his shot attempts per game would go up, and he finally started being more aggressive offensively in terms of searching for his own shot. And Nick McDevitt would say after games that that was one of the biggest things that he was trying to instill in Donovan was to search for your own shot. You're a great scorer. You know, get it, go out there and get your own shot. You're a solid shooter. Does he have to yeah, do the same thing this year? I think he, he can and, and he will do that. And I think it was kind of a situation for him where he came in towards the end where they had that unbelievable class with Giddy Potts and, King and some of those other guys that were around, Dixon, mm-hmm. and as a result, I think he kind of ego-wise checked his ego at the door and then maybe lost a little confidence and, and probably thought, man, I can't measure up to what those guys were. But now I think he feels like, yes, I can play at this level. I can be a really good conference USA player. And Coach McDevitt has instilled a lot of confidence in him. They run plays for him. And you know, he, he's always had a good stroke. That's why he uh, earned a scholarship there. But um, now he's starting to use it. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited for the um, upside of Donovan Sims. Yeah, and I think he's going to have to be the, the leader of this team. And with DeAndre being hurt, he's going to be the main facilitator as well and finding guys like Antonio Green and, and Reggie Scurry. And as a former guard yourself, what do you like most about watching Antonio Green play? Um, I like that he is – his energy level. He plays the defensive end. He's always moving. He's constantly attacking when he has the basketball. He's a really good player. Um, he hunts shots a little bit, but that's okay because he had to with that group that he had. And I think now he's going to get a little bit more help. You know, they don't have Dishman, but I like um, there's a uh, Juco transfer, Devontae Milner at six foot six, played at Cape Fear Community. Played for a good friend of mine, Ryan Mantlow, uh, former Liberty guard like myself. 
Um, he can come in. I mean, those Cape Fear kids come in ready to play. Anytime at this level you get that third-year guy, even though he hasn't been in your system, he's a guy that's usually ready to come in and contribute right away. So, uh, yeah, I, I love Antonio Green's aggressiveness, and that's why he landed on the preseason All-Conference USA team. And, of course, the rival for MTSU, Western Kentucky, probably has the most talent in this conference, and its I, I don't think it's really that close. They're going to be really deep, um, even though this program over the last couple of years has kind of experienced their own fair share of, what's the word, inconsistency? Adversity. Adversity. <laughs> yeah, they, they've experienced a lot. Uh, even stability is something they haven't really had, but they're bringing back a lot yeah. for this roster this year, especially Charles Bassey. And outside of Javon Jackson from UTSA, I think he might be the clear choice to be the preseason player of the year, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I think a lot of people share that opinion. And the reason is because the guy is a borderline NBA first-round draft pick now, and he'll probably turn himself into one um, maybe at the end of this year. Um, Mm. He made a great decision, in my opinion. And I love the fact that the NCAA allows you to come back now. Oh, it's great. Four or five years ago. They wouldn't let you come back once you declare for the draft. Now they'll let you even go through the combines, and he got a chance to do that. And because of that, he got an honest assessment of where he would be drafted and decided that Western Kentucky, Bowling Green, was the place he needed to be for at least another year. You think about, we talked about teams that are taking steps forward. I actually think Western's going to be even better than they were last year. Now We say they were great last year, but they lost seven conference games um, their problem to me last year was the guard turned it over a little too much. He didn't have a lot of continuity. At one point, Rick Stansbury was really literally running old school offense, three men on the perimeter, two in the, in the post, because that's where they were. Don't see a lot of that nowadays, do you? Yeah, you don't see it at all. You see open posts, let alone a guy on each block. But when you have a guy like Bassey, who is a, a, a automatic bucket inside, and had Tolu Smith, who transfer who's also 6'11 won't be back this year but those two guys were were on the block and they tried to make it tough on teams but it slowed them down it slowed the game down it slowed the pace down for them and I thought that hurt them a little bit so this year Tavion Hollingsworth well as a junior you know he's been good since he was a freshman another preseason all-conference player Bassey and Hollingsworth are going to be a dynamic duo to stop uh and then you know Jared Savage is back Josh Anderson, in my opinion, the, the most athletic, certainly the most spectacular dunker in the conference. And Tavion Kinsey and uh, Marshall will take issue with that, but give me Josh Anderson all day, every day. But um, I, I just think they have a nice nucleus coming back. Um, you know, they, they don't have a, a, some of the, the weight at the end of the bench that they, they kind of moved, jettison some of those guys out. Three freshmen coming in, plus a redshirt freshman. They're going pretty good again this year. Um, you know, I, I mentioned that last week when I was at uh, Conference USA uh, Media Day, and I would ask the other coaches what they thought about Western. And, you know, they all said, yeah, they're going to be talented. But you know what? They were really talented last year, and they didn't win at all, did they? Oh, no. Yeah, so, underachieved, I think. It's, it's, yes, a little bit. So no one's afraid of them, that's for sure. But um, in my opinion, they're going to be a fun team to watch. I get to go to Bowling Green a couple of times at least. I think I, I, think I have them at least five times, and then, you know, I don't know who I'm going to have the last five games of the year because, as you know, Conference USA for the second straight season is doing the bonus play 
where they kind of reshuffle the deck at the end of the season and they tier each group of teams. And you just play, if you're in the top tier, you only play top tier teams. Mm-hmm. Middle tier, you only play middle tier teams. And if you're in the lower tier, you only play lower tier teams. So um, it's going to be fun. I can't wait to get back to Bowling Green. But my first conference USA game right there where you are. Aha, uh-huh. back in our backyard. Yes, sir. Belmont, Middle Tennessee, November 30th. A good measuring stick game. Yeah, a big measuring stick game for both of those. And, and you mentioned Conference USA pod play, and I'd like your, on, uh, your honest opinion on this. I want to say I don't like it. Um, I didn't like it last year, um, mostly for, for planning purposes, but also I, I don't think that last year the conference was good enough to have like you know those top teams in the conference when they're playing right. a couple more times when they exchange losses and both these teams are what one and one or two and two against each other or two and one after the yeah, tournament. Yeah, they kind of they ate each other up, didn't they? I, yeah. I think, in, in fact, that top tier, everybody went two and two. Mm-hmm. So it didn't help anybody. It cannibalizes it, it, each you, other. You mentioned, you mentioned, yeah, they, they, they cannibalize each other. That's exactly right. Um, let's think about why Conference USA is doing it. It's, two, it's a twofold reason. Number one, they're trying to get uh, a, be a, become a multiple bid league again. And they think if they could get one of those teams kind of boost them up to be an at-large, similar to what Middle Tennessee probably should have been um, in Kermit Davis's last year when they got beat by Marshall in the tournament, they probably should have been at-large based on their record. They were top 25 in the nation going into the Conference USA tournament. Yeah, a week before that they loss. Get an at-large bid. Yeah, a week before that loss. And so, um, you know, to me, they had done enough. They had some power five wins. They, they had 14 true road wins. How many teams even play 14 true road games? You know, Very I, few. I'll tell you what, Duke does it. Duke doesn't play hardly any true road games. They'll play you in New York. They'll play you on a neutral court. They They'll play, play you at MSG, which is get, Cameron Indoor Part 2. Right. It's like a home game for them. So, and, and it's not just them. In Michigan, all the Power 5 teams, they don't, they don't need to go on the road, so they don't go on the road. And, you know, so I, I, I thought Kermit had done enough, but at any point, at any rate, the reason they're doing it is to, to get a second team but secondly, they want to get, um, if the team that does make it, they want to kind of boost them up in terms of maybe getting a 13 or a 12 seed, which could be the difference between winning the first game or not. You know, you get a 12-5 matchup, as we know, those are wins every year. So for the 12 seed, at least one, sometimes two, sometimes three. So, you know, they, it didn't happen for them last year, but I don't think the sample size is big enough to decide um, if it was a success or not. Having said that, I think you hit the nail on the head. Logistically speaking, it's a nightmare. Oh, and, and not yeah. just travel and planning. Um, I don't like the fact that you could conceivably play the same team three times or maybe even four times if you meet them in the conference tournament. Oh, yeah. um, and it was a couple of teams that went to the same team twice and had to play them twice in their home, home building because of the way the, uh, the matchups uh, fell out. So... There are some, some negatives to it, but I think at least they're trying something. You have to give the conference a little bit of credit for it. Oh, yeah. I'll give them, I'll give them credit for trying something. It's I wasn't very fond of how it, I kind of executed in the first season, but it might be different this year. You have a couple other teams that, that do play really impressive in their non-conference slates, and they really yeah. give a, a, a look to the selection committee. Um, about taunting for or maybe trying to entice an at-large bid. This might benefit, but we'll have to wait and see when the conference is a little deeper, I guess, than it was last year. 
But bringing things yeah, back to – oh, go ahead. And one more thing, going into it, you have to say Western Kentucky is that team that if this was going to benefit somebody, it would benefit them. because They'll have a chance to get some non-conference wins. Mm-hmm. They usually do each year. And if they handle their business in Conference USA and then they get into that a bonus play and they win those games, yeah, you could conceivably see them getting at-large. But yeah. there's not many candidates for it, let's be honest. Yeah, I'm with you there. I think I think the the one in this conference would be Western Kentucky, and they have a couple chances in the uh, early non conference schedule. Playing uh, Belmont will be a, a big conference booster. Belmont will be pretty good this year. Arkansas, Louisville, um, they're going to have have some chances in the non conference slate. Their non conference slate isn't very easy. And but going back to them. One thing that really interests me, and I, um, you have to correct me if I'm wrong, if uh, Lipscomb transfer Kenny Cooper has been deemed eligible, um, but that guy was a key part to Lipscomb's success last year and their last two yeah. teams, and, even. Um, talking to, to Rich Tesbury, he feels like he's going to be eligible. When I asked him about newcomers last week at the conference, was a media day on camera. He said, you know, Kenny Cooper is a guy we're going to be. Play for us. And, and, and he is the guard that they needed because, you know, he'll give them some stability in the backcourt. He won't turn it over as much, and he can score as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I believe they're counting on him playing this season. So, and, and Lipscomb, of course, was a team that was really tremendous last year, probably an NCAA tournament team, if not for that small school in Lynchburg, Virginia. Don't know if you've heard of University. them. <laughs> I don't know if you heard of Liberty. But, yeah, they, they were able to um, beat Lipscomb on their floor in their Atlantic Sun um, championship game. Oh, they did it twice, um, yeah, late in the regular season and, and then came back and did it in the tournament, too. I mean, that's that's another team. We want to go on a on a, a bunny trail. I could talk about Liberty's run all year long. Richie McKay is one <laughs> hell of a coach. Yeah, Richie McKay, good friend of mine. He's done a tremendous job at Liberty in the short time. Of course, he was on the staff for – Tony with Tony Bennett, Tony built that squad along with Ron Sanchez, who is the head coach at Charlotte now. So it was uh, interesting talking to Conference USA uh, tournament, uh, Conference USA coaches who have a connection to UVA, talking to Jeff Jones and talking to Ron Sanchez, those two in particular. They were really kind of excited for different reasons to have Virginia be the national champion. Obviously, it's, it's Jeff Jones' alma mater. He coached there. And, and, of course, Ron Sanchez was responsible for a lot of the players that were on that roster that won the national championships. Yeah, recruited a lot of those guys. And that's that's kind of what happens when you're a, a coach with an innovative defense that your dad created and you start winning 30 games in the ACC every year. Your coaching tree starts to expand a little bit. Hmm. You start to lose those assistants. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, but they, have, they have a nice, uh, a nice set of, of coaches around the country off of a Dick Bennett system. And more and more people are starting to develop that pack line defense, starting to apply it, um, which is not good for college basketball because that is a tough defense to, to attack. It, it makes you have to be patient. And you know what we all like as fans? We like to see that ball moving. We like mm-hmm. to see that Golden State-style offense. And uh, the pack line kind of slows that down. So. It certainly does. Um, it's yeah, a pace really, killer. Really, really happy really happy for UVA um, and Tony Bennett to win. And we talked about Western Kentucky being the obvious favorite. Who do you think has the best shot to kind of beat them and kind of exploit some of their weaknesses? You know, I did a game at Western last year between um, UTSA and Western, 
and um, I did actually follow UTSA to their next game at Marshall. In the first game, Javon Jackson had 40-plus points. In the second game, Keaton Wallace had 40-plus points. So you got two guards who probably, they might be the most prolific backcourt in the nation this year in terms of scoring. You know, they were two of the top four scorers in Conference USA. Jackson was one, and Keaton Wallace was four. So you look at the fact that they have that much firepower. And, and talking to um, Steve Henson last week, he's really excited to get this season going. Because he felt like they fizzled down the stretch, even though they had that firepower. But they have almost everyone coming back from that team. And I think they're picking second uh, in the, in the uh, conference USA preseason. So um, I would say UTSA. And again, UTEP with those five uh, transfers, you know, you don't know how they're going to be. But um, UTEP and UTSA are two teams that um, I think could really challenge Western Kentucky. Another one is, um, is F- FIU because uh, Ballard, uh, Jeremy Ballard, the head coach there, former VCU assistant from the Shaka Smart, they developed that at whole 40 minutes. They're not calling it Havoc, but they're pretty much doing Havoc. And uh, they have a lot of scoring power as well. So you put that defensive smothering on you and scores. FIU actually could make some noise in Conference USA for the first time in a long time. That's yeah, that's a team that int- intrigues me a lot too, is because they can really dictate pace, and they got a couple of guys that can shoot. Trajan uh, Jacob is one of my favorite players to watch in the conference. He's got an excellent left-handed stroke. That team is really good at pushing the pace, and I mean they went from one of the slowest teams in college basketball to one of the fastest with Ballard yeah. coming there, and that's an that's an interesting team to watch. Yeah, no doubt. Before we let you go, it wouldn't be a wouldn't be a radio show if I didn't ask you who you think is going to win the Conference USA title outright right now here in November. You know, obviously the the smart money would be on um, Western, um, but really, I mean, the, the schools I mentioned, US, UTSA and UTEP, will challenge. Don't think Old Dominion is going to be bad. They're going to still be good. They're going to be really, really hard to beat. They lose a little firepower in the backcourt. But they just kind of reload. And, you know, Jeff Jones told me last week if he can get to 65 points, he's going to win a lot of games. Now, he also looked at me and said, Tim, I don't know if we can get to 65 points. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, yeah, I think, I think there's going to be a lot of teams challenging for the championship. It's not going to be a runaway like Middle did a few years ago. I think there's, it's going to be, uh, again, think about this. Old Dominion won the conference with five losses. I think this year, maybe three losses might win the conference, and you know I got to go with Western. I don't think I just think they're going to be really hard to beat, especially if Cooper is eligible. Oh yeah, the combination of size, depth, and if they can get a little three-point shooting, Western Kentucky is dangerous, and I think they'll be able to to make a, a statement throughout Conference USA. Tim, thanks for joining us. I uh, really appreciate taking the time to talk with us, and. It's almost that time. We're less than a week away. The season's right around the corner. Yes, sir. Appreciate it, Elijah. Thanks for having me, man. Enjoyed it. Tim Scarborough, Stadium TV College Basketball Color Analyst, here to talk with us on the Buzzer Beater Podcast on here on ESPN 1025 The Game. A quick little reminder, too, that the Blue Raiders can be heard here on 1025 The Game and 94.9 Game 2 throughout the season. And when we return, I'll go ahead and revisit my discussion with new Belmont head basketball coach Casey Alexander, as well as open up the inauguration of my favorite segment, Technical Fouls. It'll be time to tease some people up 
here on the Buzzer Beater Podcast on ESPN 1025 The Game. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. Lawrence? Thank you, Jack Nicholson. Thank you for the introduction. Excellent discussion with Tim Scarborough. That guy had an awesome experience over the summer doing the basketball tournament. And it was really interesting to talk about the Elam ending. And that's actually something that could happen in our lifetime, I hope. Exciting way to end basketball games. It's also nice to talk with Tim about MTSU, which you could hear their games here on 1025 The Game, as well as 94.9 Game 2. And have a nice discussion about Western Kentucky basketball. I actually am really excited to see how they do this year. Charles Bassey could be a first-round draft pick. Might have been last year, depending on some teams. But he's going to have to fix him. He's going to fix that three-point shot and maybe get himself in better shape. But he's got a whole year to do it. And thankfully, the process is going to benefit him on being able to do the combine and then come back and be able to test the waters after this year. But pivoting to Belmont. A historic season last year. Getting an at-large bid in the OVC. And that's the first time that's happened since 1987, back when MTSU, fun fact, was an at-large getting into the tournament without winning their conference tournament when Murray State won it. But with the losses from last year's team, they're going to have to replace Dylan Windler and Kevin McLean, as well as legendary head coach Rick Bird. The guy to do that is new head coach Casey Alexander, who used to be coaching former rival, or still current rival, Lipscomb. Had a very successful stint there, and Coach Alexander played for Rick Bird and coached under him for about 16 years at Belmont. He was at Belmont in total as a player and assistant coach for about 20 years, so almost easy to say that there wasn't a better man for that job than Coach Alexander. Last week, I had the pleasure of getting to go into a practice and get to watch them do their thing and even speak with Coach Alexander about his team coming into the year and how they're going to follow up last year's performance of not just making it into the NCAA tournament as an at-large, but winning a game against Temple. I also got to speak with him about his OVC Player of the Year candidate, Nick Masinski, and other big man Seth Adelsberger, as well as point guard Grayson Murphy. I also got to talk to him about analytics, something that Coach Alexander says that he loves to infuse and incorporate into his team and their game plans. Here is what that conversation sounded like. Here with Belmont head basketball coach Casey Alexander. Coach, thanks for joining me. Thanks for uh, taking the time to talk with me today for practice. Um, first question, I'll go ahead and start off probably the obvious one here for people that are that kept up with Belmont basketball. And that's when Coach Bird retired and you played for him, have a connection with this school. How immediate did you know that you were the perfect man for this job and that you wanted? Oh, well, uh, that wasn't really for me to decide <laughs> if I was the perfect guy or not. But, I mean, it was – you know, with so much history here, it's pretty natural that people would think that I was a candidate and pretty natural that I would think about it myself. You know, I mean, I knew the day was coming and I knew ahead of time that he was going to retire, but I didn't know what I was going to do and I didn't know if they would want me to be the coach. How long, uh, I guess, before he retired did you actually know that he was going to retire? Uh, I mean, officially a week or so. But, uh, okay. Yeah. So you kind of you knew for almost yeah. anybody else. But did, I knew yeah. for the better part of a year that it was – possible or maybe even probable okay yeah and of course you know playing for him i'm assuming you guys had a really good relationship when you were 
and your previous stops. Yeah, we stay very well connected. I mean, I mean, I coached with him for 16 years, so I was here for 20 years altogether. Mm-hmm. And then he was very helpful to me during my time, my eight years away. We stayed in very close contact. We got together frequently for coffee or to talk about our teams, very supportive through text messages and so forth. Did he vouch for you, I guess, whenever it came time to replace him? Uh, I mean, do you think he did? I don't think he necessarily vouched for me. I mean, he he, he wanted Belmont to do whatever they thought was best. And, um, you know, I think he believed that I would be a good candidate and that I could do the job. And, and I think he expressed that. But he, he didn't really get in the way of the search one way or the other, as, as far as I know. And what about him? Of course, you've spent a lot of time with him. Uh, what about his coaching style? Did you want to kind of replicate for this team? And what different, or what difference, I guess, would you want to uh, bring to these guys in uh, terms of your the, own? The main things style? that I wanted to replicate and that I appreciate um, have little, little to do with X's and O's, and it's more about just how to run a program, and mm-hmm. how to build a program, and how to, you know, deciding what you want to stand for and, and how you want your players to represent, you know, Belmont. And so, um, you know. But also learn plenty of X's and O's wise, and you know that's it's the only guy I ever worked for. So naturally, a lot of what I do is gonna is gonna be a derivative of what I learned from him. And now, talking about your team on the floor, guys lose, win, little lose, McLean. Obviously, big pieces from last year's team, but you come back with a lot of size too. One of the bigger teams, mm-hmm. I guess, that I've noticed in college basketball this year. Talk about your team's size and how is that going to help you guys going into this year? I hope it'll help. Um, you know, I do think physically we're you know for our level and where we are, I think we can. Um, we can be a good team and get some things done. We, we replace, you know, not only two great players, but perimeter players that provided most of our scoring points. So it doesn't have a lot to do with the size. Maybe we'll use right. the size to compensate for that. But I like the nucleus that we have coming back. I think um, I think we'll have a chance to win plenty of games and have another good season. And for Nick Masinski, big boy. Yep. Great, uh, great on the boards. Great passer, too. Um, what does he give you guys offensively outside of just his size? That he's a you know he can he scores it so well on his own, um, you know. But 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 you also have to kind of pick your poison because he is such a good passer. I mean, he's like 80 assists last year, and, you know, better than a two to two to one assist turnover ratio, which is unusual for a big guy. So he's oh, a yeah. multi-purpose threat and does a lot of good things. And you guys, and a lot of your big men are really good passers and a lot of that's again a staple of a lot of coach yeah. birds teams we work on it a lot yeah we work on it a lot it's where our offense starts we've always been a good three-point shooting team mm-hmm. and we've made more threes than any team in the country since we went d1 but it's because we play through the post and and, and our offense kind of complements each other and especially with the crew you have right now do you think getting three-point shots inside and out would probably be the easier way i guess to uh that's the best way to get them. I mean, you know, play, playing from the inside out is the best way to play offense, in our opinion. It's kind of how we build our offense. And, um, and uh, you know, we're not, we're not necessarily trying to get one or the other, um, but, uh, but we think we, you know, have both. They're yeah. able to do both. Yeah. 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 And Seth, 6'11", I guess you'd say, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A fifth-year senior. Guy. Yeah, I mean, a fifth-year senior that's uh, confident and really gives us, you know, some other dimensions. He's an excellent defensive player. He just does his job all the time. We, we, uh, we expect to see, I guess, a lot of lineups with both him and Nick in there together. Probably two, won't six, ever seven. see that. Okay. Yeah. Kind of what I figured. You know, having yeah, two four out one in. twin towers yeah, like four that. Four out one in, and uh, you know, so they'll just separate each other, and you know, whoever's playing the best will be the one <laughs> on the floor. And another one of my uh, your players that I've really been fascinated with watching last year was Grayson Murphy. Yeah. And I read where you recruit and pretty good to go to Lipscomb and that's your kind of point guard right what about Grayson especially playing you know as a true freshman last year 
makes him such a it's great red passer. Shirt freshman. Red, red shirt freshman. freshman. Yeah. But yeah, he, he's just uh, yeah, his competitive spirit is what makes him so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's a winner. Plays with great intensity. Pretty relentless. Um, but he's also got great savvy and just know-how as a point guard, and that, that's where you see all the assists come from. Absolutely. He's praised Barr the best passer in the, in the conference. There's well, many guys. I mean, the assist numbers would indicate that, you know, mm-hmm. but no one, uh, and, um, but I think he can score, too. Uh, he's not a shooter, but he can score. I think he'll be a double-figure guy this year. Mm-hmm. And another thing I like about your team, too, and that's, like, we, you mentioned it earlier, it's been a staple of a lot of Coach Bird's teams, is the way you got to shoot the three ball. Yeah. And... A lot of uh, basketball analytics, the Kurt Goldsberries of the world will tell you that the open three is the best three, or the open three is the best shot in basketball. Bruce Pearl at SEC Media yeah, Day sure. when I was down there said the open three is the, the best shot yeah. in all of basketball. And if you ever hear a commentator you know, say that you live by three, die by yeah. three, turn the audio on. And that kind of stuck with me a little bit. Does that kind of resonate the same way with you? Do you guys kind of have that same same mindset? And do you use numbers like analytics to determine? Oh, I'm heavy per on it, analytics, and we definitely use points per shot attempt and points mm-hmm. per possession, and, and you name that. Uh, but uh, you know, we're not we're not going out trying to accomplish anything specific from the three point line. You mm-hmm. know, but it's just how we play. And really, we're we're. Our strength is in numbers. You know, we may have an excellent guy or two from three, but what we really want are seven or eight, ten guys that can all make it, and therefore we get good ones. You know, it doesn't have to be one or two guys that we're working to get shots for. They can they can play off of each other. And I guess the last question I have for you too is I like I like talking about basketball analytics, and that's obviously changed the way a lot of coaches coach and a lot of decisions have been made. How else does that affect your all's decision making? And has it been that way in the past, or is it something? That you've I, I always... think you have to just use them as a complimentary piece. I mean, you'd be foolish not to pay attention to them because they're, mm-hmm. they're hardline facts and they give you data and they, you know, and you can, um, you know, if you, if you need just more info on how you're doing something well, poor, whatever, analytics can provide that for you. But coaching is still a gut reaction. It's not baseball, you know. Right. Where, uh, well, you stop know, our game is so fast. And, uh-huh. you, and you have so little control, you still have to do a lot just by feel. And so ultimately, that's still what it comes down to. All right, that's all I have for you. Thanks for taking the time. Talk yeah. with me. Good luck this season. Good to see you. Looks like he wants a technical. And there's going to be a technical foul. And a technical foul call. You, you like that technical foul call. Why? That's a tech. They call, they call tech. Oh, and he got. He got teed up as well, coach. Whack, get out. Technical foul, Wallace, he's gone. And gets the technical foul for That'll cost him some money as well. Ah, my favorite part of the show. Welcome back to the Buzzer Beater Podcast. My name is Elijah Campbell, and it's time to tee some people up, hand out some technical fouls. And it's not a technical foul montage if I don't have a little bit of Rashid Wallace technical fouls in there, right? The legend, the guy's the king of the technical foul. No one got teed up better than Rashid Wallace, and hopefully no one's going to be handing out technicals better than yours truly. For each for each technical foul segment, I'll hand out two technical fouls, because that's what you're allowed in an NBA basketball game before you get booted. And I got a couple that I want to give out. And... I know that it's early, and there hasn't been any college basketball played. And part of the show is uh, will be me talking some NBA as well. Big fan of the NBA. One of my technical fouls involves one of the local teams here in the state, the Memphis Grizzlies, but 
But first, I'm going to have to slap a technical foul to a team that's, in my opinion, one of the best in the NBA. But last night had an absolutely atrocious defensive showing, and that is the Houston Rockets. So my first technical foul of the season is going to go to the Houston Rockets defense. Yes, the Houston Rockets defense. They gave up. Well, before I give into the the nitty-gritty of the numbers of how bad their defense was, last night the final score between the Houston Rockets and Washington Wizards scores 159 to 158. My goodness, that's regulation. There was no overtime at all. And the adjusted pace in that game was 109.7. So it's an estimated about 109 or 110 possessions in that game. And the Washington Wizards hung 158 on the Houston Rockets. Now, I expect the Rockets to, to drop 159 on a team like the Wizards. The Rockets are a very innovative offense, and they have one of the be- they have two of the best offensive players in basketball and one of the most efficient scorers in basketball being James Harden. Now, as you would expect, James Harden had some stupid scoring numbers, 59 points, 9 assists, 18-32 shooting, and got to the line 18 times and hit 17 of them. Guy had an effective field goal percentage of 65.6%, which is nuts. That's absolutely nuts. He had a vintage James Harden game. Clint Capella had 21 points. He got a tri- almost a yeah, triple-double from Russell Westbrook, 17 points, 10 rebounds, 12 assists. And while the 159 number is remarkable, absolutely remarkable, what should be shameful is giving up 158 to a bad Washington Wizards team. Now, before I go even deeper into the numbers here about how bad of a defensive performance this is, let me name you the starting lineup of the Washington Wizards. At point guard, Ish Smith. Yes, Ish Smith. For some of you who didn't know that that was an NBA player, he's floated around several different teams. Former Wake Forest point guard great for some some of you who might know him as that, but he hasn't really made much of a name in the NBA. Isaac Bonga, Rui Hachimura, a rookie, playing in his fourth NBA game from Gonzaga. Center Thomas Bryant, and then, of course, Bradley Beal, your all-star. Bradley Beal is an exceptional basketball player, and last night he had an exceptional game. 46 points, 6 rebounds, 8 assists, 3 steals. Excellent game. 14-20 shooting from the field, 7-12 from 3. Bradley Beal did what Bradley Beal usually does. An effective shooting percentage of 87.5 in a game like that. That's that's a hard number to top. But what shouldn't happen is rookies like Rui Hachimura dropping 23 on you. Or Davis Bertans dropping 21 on you off the bench. Or Isaiah Thomas, who hadn't had a great scoring game in about two years, scores 17 on you off the bench and drop 10 dimes. That's almost inexcusable. This is a bad defensive performance. Now, when you look at numbers like effective field goal percentage from a team standpoint, it's really hard sometimes to decipher whether that number is indicative of how great the offense was or how poor the defense was. Individually, an effective field goal percentage, a great effective field goal percentage by a player is like in the 64-65 range. The rule of thumb is if if you have 
60% effective field goal percentage. It's almost like shooting 60% from the field. That's lights out. Well, as a team against the Rockets, the Washington Wizards had an effective field goal percentage of 73.6. Now, effective field goal percentage, I my apologies for not explaining this earlier, is basically field goal percentage, but with accounting that threes are worth more than twos. So three-point buckets are weighted more than two-point buckets are. To kind of get the effect of that three-point line in there and to teach the lesson or even insinuate that not all buckets in basketball are equal, which is true. People a lot smarter than me came up with this, and it's a good way to determine how effective a team is offensively. Now back to the Wizards and back to the Rockets, giving up a stupid amount of points and high percentages to the Wizards. 73.6% was the effective field goal percentage for a bad Washington Wizards team against the Rockets. Now it's the Rockets team with James Harden, Russell Westbrook, P.J. Tucker, Clint Capella, who is a monster, by the way, very, very big man, 6'11", 7 foot, super long arms, excellent shot blocker, and then Daniel House. That round out the starting lineup. The Rockets now obviously aren't a great defensive team in general, but they should be a little better than letting the Wizards go off for a 73.6 effective field goal percentage and score 158 points in regulation on them. Here's another metric for you called offensive rating. For those who don't know, offensive rating is basically a number that explains how many points per 100 possessions a team is scoring. Long story short, if you're scoring below 100 points per 100 possessions, you're not a very effective offense. You aim to at least be over 100, and that's probably setting it fairly low. But if you're going away with a point per possession on average, your offense is moving relatively effectively. So 100 offensive rating would equal to one point per possession. Well, against the Rockets, this poor, poor, poor Washington Wizards team had 144 offensive rating. They lit them up. They were scoring any time they wanted to. Now, granted, the Rockets were scoring any time they wanted to, but the Rockets do that to a lot of teams. This Washington Wizards team really doesn't. You can tell which teams in the NBA are tanking, and the Washington Wizards aren't necessarily trying to win a lot of games right now. They're tanking pretty hard. Any team that trots out a rookie, Rui Hachimura, or a Thomas Bryant, who's a former Laker cast-off, as well as Laker cast-off Isaac Bonga, they're playing those guys 34-24 minutes and starting them. Isaiah Thomas, when he was even healthy, couldn't sniff the floor in Denver. He got 24 minutes last night, dropped 17 and 10 assists on you. And Mo Wagner couldn't sniff the floor in L.A. barely. Spent a lot of time in the G League and was a cast-off with Isaac Bonga. Played 13 minutes and 42 seconds. Now, they weren't tanking enough to play former volunteer great Jordan McRae. He did not play. But this is a bad Washington Wizards team outside of Bradley Beal. They shouldn't be scoring 158 points on anyone. They shouldn't be able to score 158 points against themselves in an inter-squad practice. But the Houston Rockets decided, let's get in a shootout with one of the worst teams in basketball 
and give up 158 points. Now, it's also amazing to think of how a team can shoot as effectively as the Wizards did and get easy buckets and make a lot of threes like they did against Houston and still lose. That should also be a testament to how bad the Wizards are. But that's going to be my first technical foul of the season, the Houston Rockets. Now, my second technical foul of the inaugural segment of technical fouls go to a team a a little closer to home, the Memphis Grizzlies. Yes, I got to slap one on the Grizzlies. Now, before the season, if you would have asked me what my expectations of this very young and promising Memphis Grizzlies roster would be, I would say they wouldn't be very good, but they'd be very fun to watch. Now, before I go ahead and dog on them, which I feel bad for doing because they are a young team, and honestly, nothing should be expected in terms of winning, but they have a lot of quirks to, to, uh, to work out. They are at least more fun to watch. If you consider fast-paced basketball fun to watch, which I do and which a lot of people do, not a lot of people are paying lots of money to watch Virginia-style basketball teams play or a pack line defense where you're playing like a handful of possessions a game. And shoot, even the Memphis Grizzlies of old, the Grind City Grizzlies, Grit and Grind Grizzlies, Zach Randolph, Mark Gasol, Tony Allen, defense-first, tough-minded Grizzlies teams. As good as they were, they were boring to watch. It was a total snooze fest. They're winning low-scoring games. And as much as I appreciate that personally, i much rather watch a team that can more resemble the 06-07 Suns. Pushing the ball up on the floor, up the floor, rather. A lot of pace and space basketball. The Grizzlies this year are doing that a little bit. A lot of bit. They're actually second in the NBA in adjusted pace, according to basketballreference.com. Excellent website, by the way. With about 108. Getting close to 108 possessions a game. That's a lot. That's a high, high pace. So they're more exciting to watch. Now, when Ja Morant, their number two overall draft pick out of Murray State, join the team, you would expect that because when John Morant was at Murray State, his Murray State racers led the entire country, according to Synergy, in fast and transition efficiency. Fast break, transition, same thing. But transition efficiency. They scored more from the fast break and from transition than any team in college basketball by a wide margin. And they're the most effective at doing it, too. They were a damn good team doing it, too. And John Morant at the helm of your offense, certainly is what makes that happen. Murray State won't be that effective in the full-court offense this year because that's what happens when you lose a John Morant. And pace is obviously going to go up if you're the Grizzlies when you gain a John Morant. So they're obviously a lot more exciting to watch right now. And here comes the technical foul part. Here's where I have to hit them with that T. And that is the offense is terrible. I explained offensive rating last, my last technical foul when discussing the Wizards, and I'm going to be using this metric all season long. So if you don't like it, I'm sorry, but this is the perfect way to, I guess, examine how effective or how efficient an offense is moving, and the Grizzlies, not so much. I told you earlier that that 100 offensive rating is about, I guess, average. That's, That's a point per possession. Buckle up. Hide the kids. It's the week of Halloween. Make sure the kids aren't listening. Make sure sensitive ears are away 
from wherever you're listening to this podcast. Because what I'm about to say is quite frightening, especially if you're a Memphis Grizzlies fan. The Memphis Grizzlies, and I know it's after four games. We have played four games, and everyone will say I'm overreacting. But this is going to be a trend that I think will continue just because the Grizzlies age. So buckle up and get ready for what I'm about to say. The Memphis Grizzlies, after the first four games of the season, are dead last in the NBA in offensive rating at 96.5. That's 96.5 points per 100 possessions. Yuck. It's horrendous. It's awful. I know it's a young team, and it's been a little bit of a slower week in in local basketball. I try to make some of my technical fouls local if I can. So the Grizzlies are going to be my first local technical foul of the year, and we'll go through a game-by-game of their offensive rating. So in their first game against the Miami Heat, in a high-paced game, scored only 101 points. 45.5 effective field goal percentage, not too hot. In an offensive rating of 90.2. Abysmal. They shot 15.6% from the three in that game. Just not hitting shots. Five for 32. Second game of the year. At home against the Chicago Bulls. Pace slowed down a little bit. Offense got a little better, but still couldn't break that 100 offensive rating threshold. A 98. Wasn't too hot for the Grizzlies. 46.8 effective field goal percentage, which is a little bit more of an improvement than it was in the Miami game. But still, nothing to hang your hat on. John Morant kind of struggled in that one, too. 10 points, 3 of 9 shooting. He's going to have, it's going to be a learning curve for him, as as well as it is for a lot of these Grizzlies players. The next game, their first one of the year, an exciting game, thrilling finish for anyone who got to watch it. A great duel between Ja Morant and Kyrie Irving, and the Nets are a team that they have a lot of stuff to figure out, too. I could have easily slapped them with a technical because as good as Kyrie Irving is to watch and as good as that team is, they have a hard time moving the ball, but I digress. But in that game, the Grizzlies actually had a higher offensive rating than the Nets. Obviously, they scored more points and broke that 100 threshold, 113.6. They were scoring the ball in a pretty relatively high-paced game. An effective field goal percentage of 55.3. Only turned the ball over 9.5% of the time, which in total was 12. And won the turnover battle, won that game. That's an effective offense. And then came the Lakers game. Now, the story from that game is Anthony Davis scoring 40 points on 17 field goal attempts and only seven field goals, which when you go 26 for 27 from the line, will happen. And before we say anything else, I would like to preface it with, yes, Anthony Davis did get fouled that many times because the only way this Grizzlies team could guard him was by hacking him every time down the floor. But let's go back to the offense. Now, this one was a total nightmare. All the progress made in the Brooklyn game, well, the Lakers aren't a bad defensive team. Any team with LeBron James and Anthony Davis won't be a bad defensive team. The Grizzlies, an offensive rating, brace it, brace for it, get ready, it was 83.6 and had an effective field goal percentage of 36.3. That is 
brutal. 20.6% from three, and at a shooting percentage of 32.6 for the entire game. But this is to be expected. However, just because it's expected doesn't mean I have to lay off the whistle. And that's about all the time I have for today's podcast. Thank you for listening to the first ever Buzzer Beater podcast. You can listen to this on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It's going to be a hard habit to break is not calling it iTunes. Trust me. That one's going to be tough. The Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. My name's Elijah Campbell, and I am excited to talk basketball with you all season long. This is only just the beginning. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Buzzer Peter Podcast here on ESPN 1025, The Game.